welcome to Fragments of Fear, a podcast dedicated to the discussion of the lesser known and underappreciated Jolly. I am Rachel Nisbet and with me, my co-host. PT, I'm How are we then this evening? After several attempts to record, we're finally recording tonight, so... Yeah, this is like our fourth attempt or something for this episode, isn't it? Yeah, it's been a very strange week for us both, so... Yeah. Yeah, we've managed to get there in the end. We always try our best to be on schedule. Yeah, finally on a Friday night when you're at your brightest and most awake. Yeah, luckily, (laughs) because it was going to be this morning and I managed to drive myself out of bed, but luckily I didn't have to commit to recording or I might have been a bit incoherent or more so than usual. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. We should be we should be fine. We've got an exciting film to discuss this time, haven't we? Yeah, very exciting film. It's it's funny because you just put something out on Twitter like what an hour or so ago and we've already had like a few positive comments about the film we're covering today, so that's always a bonus. And I think yeah. it's one that there's not so much about actually. No, it's a bit overlooked, I'd say. Yeah, even when I'd like because we both look at, you know, like reference books and things like before we record this and even in the like I was looking at um, Luigi Cozzi's book and there's really nothing on on the film we're discussing so yeah funny one yeah hopefully fill in some gaps for people yeah it's always the hope so before we get into it has there been anything of note that you've watched lately I watched two good films today Max and the Junkman from 1971 by Claude with uh, Michel Piccoli and Romy Schneider I really enjoy that. Very good French crime drama. And then I watched um, Eckhard Schmidt's The Sandman, which wasn't my favourite of the films that I've seen of his so far, but it was it was good and it had some really interesting sequences in it. Yeah, it's, it's a good film. I think the problem is when you watch the, the trilogy they did, and it's not like the Doom trilogy, but, you know, like something along those lines. But, um, yeah. yeah, I think maybe it's just our sensibilities and our taste, but then you watch something like The Sandman, it's still good, but it's just not in that vein. So maybe more on the drama end of things without more of the lurid qualities, perhaps. It started off quite good and had some almost, felt like it almost had some Daria Argentina Suspiria era visuals in it, but it dragged a little bit, I think. Not as good as The Gold of Love or The Fan or, or Lofts, but, but still worthwhile. Yeah, and if anyone's not seen those yet, they're definitely recommended. But no, both good um, watches today. That's quite a nice double bill. Yeah. How about yourself? Have you seen anything good? Um, or you have, actually, because I've read about it on Twitter. I'm trying to think, I'm like, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> what did I put on my blog? <laughs> yeah, I was thinking of Obligo um, du Diocare, Sugswang. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a film that I saw quite a few years ago. So that's what I was just thinking for a minute. I was like, oh, what did sorry. I watch? Yeah, no. Because but... you posted your piece on it. Yeah, no, it was one of those ones where, you know, like it's like everything you watch it years back and then you get around to eventually writing about it years later. Um, I'm not very good at I'm always in kind of awe of people that have letterboxes and like review films every day, like after they watch it, because that's not how I tend to work. But um, yeah, that was something that I've revisited a couple of times and had to sit and translate bits of it. But um, yeah, really enjoyed like analysing that. And it's nice when you're kind of looking at a film in an analytical way and really trying to bore down into it. So yeah, it was fun to revisit that. I think other things I've watched, there's been quite a few, but I had a bit of a Tim Roth double bill. Um, And I feel like there's loads of films of his that I've missed out on. So I watched Captives, which is the one from 1994. It's um, like an erotic kind of drama, I suppose. I don't think I've seen that one. Yeah, it's about um, a dentist in prison. So that was good. And I watched then, like after that, I watched Alan Clark's Made in Britain. Um, I really like Alan Clark's work. So I revisited that and that was really fun well not fun god really fun that is not the word for that film but yeah it was like a really it was a really good watch i was trying to use like another word other than good and i went with fun which is not the word that i'd use to describe skinheads and quite a grim depiction of britain but yeah that was really good and i 
like to get my hands on you yeah, that Alan Clark box set because I've really enjoyed the work that I've seen of his so far. Yeah, and there's been uh, some cool announcements as well, hasn't there? Yeah, well, um, it's lucky that we held off recording until tonight because we've had a few announcements today. So I don't know if you want to announce the most recent ones. Today, Vinegar Syndrome announced it's part of the Black Friday lineup, I believe, and it was their second Jalo box set. This time around, we get three titles that have all been out on DVD before, but a couple of them are long out of print, and of course, none of them have been released on Blu-ray. So we get French Sex Murders, apparently, a longer version that's never been on disc before. William Rose's The Girl in Room 2A with Daniela Giordano and Rosalba Neri and Raffaloni in an extended cut. And for me, the best title of the bunch, Tonino Valeri's My Dear Killer, starring George Hilton and Mario Tullo. So that's pretty much a must-have set, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I'm quite surprised because I knew they were doing like another set and I didn't know which titles were going to be in that set I had a yeah. I had an idea about titles that they had coming up but yeah that was a nice surprise because I, I really like that combination of films especially with the fact you've got French Sex Murders and Girl in Room 2A together being like Dick Randall productions it was something that I think there was talk about French Sex Murders quite a while back and I was under the assumption that it might be released separately so I'm really glad that they've been put together and like you say My Dear Killer is definitely the most exciting title of that um, release and it's one that we might recover on the, on the show despite it getting a release it's something we probably wouldn't be averse to oh yeah because sure. I still think it's quite underrated as a piece, even though it's like had the shameless release and people are familiar with it, but maybe not so much as some others. Yeah, and I would think that that's probably a title that would benefit quite a bit from a new scan as well. Absolutely, yeah. And seeing George Hilton's moustache and HD. It doesn't get much better than that, does it? <laughs> not at all, no. But yeah, like you say, there's some moments in that film, like obviously there's some really great set pieces but also just things like there's production design in that film that's quite interesting and I'd love to see that in a restored print so looking forward to that and then the other news that we've had through in the last I think it's the last week or week and a bit is that um, Severin have announced their new titles for October and there's three new um, titles that they're releasing it's Luigi Cozzi's The Black Cat from 1989 which I'm very very excited about I have some crazy love for that film even though I know it's maybe not the most perfect of films but it's just one of those I'm sure you're the same and we've kind of found this in the past it's one of those titles that you just never thought would get a release and I think there was talk of like are the elements even in existence still so that's really great news because the versions that are going about at the minute are just like really crappy VHS quality. So yeah. happy about that. And then we've got Mario Bianchi's Patrick Still Lives, um, which is another um, interesting title. Uh, I'm just laughing because me and Johnny Larkin did a podcast on it a while back and it was just ridiculous. Some of the stuff that we're coming out with. Again, that's a good release. I think it'll appeal to a lot of people. Um, more on the kind of exploitation side in the style of um, so, Patrick. Uh, it's a very loose sequel, isn't it? Very, very loose sequel, but yeah, one of those classic cash-ins. And then we have Alain Jessua's Shock Treatment as well, which is another really oh, yeah. solid title. I didn't even realise it was that I thought it was the other shock treatment when I first heard of it, because I've seen the film before and I really enjoyed it, but I think it's it's called Flix de Shock in French maybe or something like that um so yeah it was a nice surprise to see that as well announced so lots of interesting titles there that I'm sure will satisfy people can help but pre-order that bundle you know they probably couldn't afford to pre-order that bundle but it's like the black cats in there and they're all good titles so yeah I'll be pre-ordering that as well like you said the black cats I never thought that would get a, a release on disc it seems like one of those times that was destined to be like crappy nth generation bootlegs going about it just goes to show that you can never really predict what's going to come out. Yeah. 
there has been some titles that you never really thought was going to be ours. Well, even the Vinegar Syndrome box set, like the first one, I wouldn't have really thought any of those titles would have been up for release anytime soon, if at all. So So at the same time as people are discussing the, the demise of physical media, we're getting some of the best releases ever. Yeah, it's a really exciting time. And stunning restorations. So. I know like a lot of people are interested in those big titles and seeing the restorations of those, and that's that's natural, so are we. But it's kind of nice in a way that so many of those releases have been released that now we're getting into the more like obscure stuff. Yeah. Um, like in reference to Jali, obviously other genres too. So um just another thing that we've mentioned already on our Patreon episode, uh, but for those of you in the UK and I believe the US as well, although I'm not hundred percent sure. The Neo Jalo Crystal Eyes is now available to stream um, via the Arrow video channel and Prime, I think. So um, it's really good Neo Jalo, really fun and well worth your time if it's available in your territory. Unfortunately, Peter can't watch it yet because it's not available in Sweden. So we're hoping that it gets more distribution or whatever. Yeah, keeping my fingers crossed for a physical release. I know. Well, there has been some demand I see on social media, so you never know. We'll see what happens. We'd also like to take a moment to welcome our new patrons. We've had a few since the last episodes of the show, so we'd like to welcome Darren Burrows, Travis Linthicum, Andrew Grover, Diaz Asino, Heather Holly, and Russell Holly. We really appreciate you guys signing up and your support. And if you've been waiting to sign up, this is a good time because October is our anniversary month and we've got some good stuff planned for you all, but a few extras for our patrons as well, which we'll come back to. And we'll also have a couple of raffles during the month and one of them will be a patron exclusive one. And before we get started on the film, we'd just like to remind everybody that we discuss all aspects of the film in the podcast, so there will be spoilers. So with that, I guess we should move on to the main event of the podcast instead of us just wittering on about what we've been up to. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, let's. So today's episode focuses on our earliest title yet, Ernesto Gastaldi and Vittorio Salerno's Libido from 1965. Alla radice dell'anima, dove il sentimento è istinto, Non c'è distinzione tra ciò che è odio e ciò che è amore. Libido, un genere nuovo di suspense, una sottile angoscia dove la bellezza è pericolo e l'amore si cambia in una diabolica arma per evocare le ombre del passato e i fantasmi dei terrori infantili. It's the first black and white shallow that we've discussed on the podcast and part of a cycle of 1960s chalet that one could consider as prototype transitional thrillers, bridging the gap between the gothic Italian flavoured horror thrillers of the 1960s and the more stylized modernist sphere of the early 1970s. Undoubtedly what will attract interest here is the involvement of Ernesto Gastaldi, who we've spoken about before in the podcast, and this is very much a film that shows the correlation between Gastaldi's gothic horrors with the quintessential chalet that we typically associate Gastaldi with. In an interview with Alessandro Mantosi, Gastaldi stated that those who want to follow the evolution of a genre must follow the evolution of the writers, adding that the directors can change but writers such as himself retain the characteristics of the genre 
And that's something really to bear in mind with libido. You can chart Castaldi's development as a writer from libido to the diabolique-inspired Lindsay Shelley that he wrote before arriving at the definitive Castaldi titles like The Strange Vice of Mrs. Ward. So Libido is a pivotal film in that development cycle. Obviously, as mentioned, this is a black and white shallow in the vein of other black and white proto-shallow of the time like A for Assassin, Sexy Party and The Third Eye. There was somewhat of a shift in the mid to latter half of the 1960s with more production shot in colour, although if you look at Shelley's serials on Italian television, Television, you'll see many of these were filmed in black and white well into the 1970s, you know, even to the later years of the 70s. I guess for a genre typified by a pop art sensibility and colour and lavish production design, black and white shallow may seem a bit at odds visually with what people would expect to see from the shallow, especially as some of these titles lean more towards the gothic and its visual signifiers. When we consider Mario Bava's Blood on Black Lace, which is perhaps the definitive text of the Shelley of the 1960s, Libido probably seems quite far removed on the surface. However, as we will get into later, it bears many of the hallmarks of what the genre developed into. And as always, it's important to remember that Blood and Black Lace didn't create this huge boom in Italian thrillers. It was half a decade on before we really saw the identifiable, trope-heavy shallow replicated repeatedly. Um, so the thrillers of the 1960s don't necessarily represent what is viewed as the traditional shallow. They represent different thriller strains influenced by other directors such as Clouseau and Hitchcock. But as said, this is Castaldi making something that's a lot more identifiable as a shallow in the vein of the early 1970s entries, albeit with differences reflecting his own background as a screenwriter of gothic horrors. You mentioned the influence of Castaldi on the genre as a whole, and we've discussed Castaldi and how influential he's been as a screenwriter previously, but this time we'll spend some time discussing Ernesto Castaldi, the director. Libido was his first directorial credit, but he wasn't the only director of the film. Vittorio Salerno was born in 1937 in Milan. He was the youngest of four brothers who all ended up in the arts, the most famous, of course, being actor Enrico Maria Salerno, born in 1926. Vittorio graduated with a degree in literature and entered the film industry in the 60s as the director of photography and assistant director on a number of documentaries shot in Greece for Riot Television. We also worked as an editor on a few projects. Castaldi and Salerno had met through mutual friends in 1963 and had tried making a science fiction project of theirs happen, but nobody was interested in financing it. That Castaldi and Salerno ended up with libido seems to have been more or less by chance. Castaldi claims that, that producer Luciano Martino and his colleague Mina Loy made a bet. Martino claimed that you had to be a good storyteller in order to be a good director while Loy maintained that a handle on the technical side was more important and Gustaldi offered to step in to settle the bet. Libido is based on an idea by Gustaldi's wife Mara Chianetta or Mara Merrill and Gustaldi wrote the script together with Salerno credited as Julian Berry and Victor Storff. Initially Gustaldi hoped to cast Vittorio's brother Enrico Maria Salerno in the role of Paul, the family friend and lawyer and had brought Vittorio aboard as a co-director in an effort to secure his older brother, but the fraternal loyalty didn't stretch that far. According to Castaldi, it was possibly because Vittorio would end up with a directorial credit before his brother, so instead the role went to Luciano Pigozzi. By all accounts, it seems like Castaldi and Salerno really collaborated on the directorial duties. But since it was a very low-budget production, Gastaldi had to function as both production manager and editor, credited as George Money, and the directorial credit on the film itself is listed as Julian Barrystorff. I'll come back and talk a little bit about his other projects later on. Yeah, I look forward to that because, like you said there, it's it's interesting to consider Gastaldi outside of his work as a screenwriter, but as a director, because 
he does have quite a few directorial credits, obviously nothing as significant as some of his kind of peers working in the Zhao kind of arena, but certainly enough to have an, an idea of or insight into his work as a director and the kind of productions that he made. So, so yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. He's so well known as a writer of Jali that I think a lot of people don't really think of him as a director at all. They just see him as a writer. Yeah, exactly. And I, I mean, I don't know, maybe this is just me being presumptuous, but the fact that Lobido has two directors, maybe some people would think, oh, well, Gastaldi wrote the film and his name's attached to the as a director but maybe it's the other director that's doing the majority of the work because he's a writer you know sometimes people have assumptions like that um but that's obviously not the case here they both seem to have been very hands-on in the directorial side of things here it's interesting that he then took a back seat and took more of a kind of writing role he seems to have enjoyed writing more and i mean he, he did direct some films but it seems like writing was his primary passion and before we start talking about the film i think you will give us a brief synopsis of the film. As a young child, Christian Carot happily plays with his Jiminy Cricket music box, but is disturbed by a noise emanating from upstairs. Cautiously investigating its source, he is traumatised when he witnesses his father murder a young blonde before his very eyes. Twenty-some years later, Christian returns to the villa, accompanied by his fiancée Elaine, to settle the estate. Also in attendance are Christian's guardian Paul and his partner Brigitte. In the interim years, Paul has acted as a caretaker of the villa, a post he took on after Christian's father's tragic suicide, which occurred at a nearby cliffside sometime after the events in the film's opening. Christian's father's body was never found, only his bloodied shirt, but was ruled to death when his body failed to materialise. On returning to the villa, Christian experiences traumatic flashbacks and much anguish over the events that took place there 20 years ago. Helene tries to reassure the fragile Christian, but she and Paul begin to question his mental stability as Christian slowly starts to unravel. Christian is convinced of an unknown presence in the villa and sees ghostly figures outside at night and strange goings-on inside involving his father's belongings. Is Christian descending into insanity, becoming just like his father, or is there a dastardly plot afoot involving one of the other players? stuff as always we'll do a brief rundown of the players as well and in this case it's it's really a case of talking about all of them because there are just four of them here yeah it's quite a funny one because we've only got four players so less than some of our other episodes and we don't have to try and work out who's the minor characters and who's the main characters but also this episode well not this episode also in libido the actors in the film are all of some note they're not really just minor people that didn't really have much else to say about them so yeah might be a wee bit longer with this one So we have our main protagonist, Christian, who's played by Giancarlo Giannini. A truly prolific Italian actor, Giancarlo Giannini has left an indelible mark in Italian cinema. Giannini was born on the 1st of August 1942 in La Spezia, Italy. His father moved to Naples when he was 10, which is where he studied electrical engineering, before moving to Rome to pursue a career in acting, studying at the Silvio D'Amico Academy of Dramatic Arts. Giannini made his stage debut in 1960, age 18, in Giuseppe Petroni Griffi's in Memoria de una Signora Amica, and further stage roles followed, including a performance as Puck in Midsummer Night's Dream. Giannini made his cinematic debut in 1965 with a starring role in Ernesto Gastaldi and Vittorio Salerno's Libido. In the same year, he came to the public's attention for his performance in a televised adaptation of David Copperfield in the titular role. This subsequently led to further roles in cinema and television. In the mid-1960s, Giannini met Italian film director Lena Wertmüller, 
and the pair began a long and fruitful collaboration, beginning with Rita the Mosquito in 1966 and extending to eight other films, including 1974's Swept Away. Giannini won the Best Actor Award at Cannes in 1973 for his performance in Vert Miller's Love and Anarchy, and through the course of his prosperous career, he's been nominated for and won numerous awards. Other performance of note include his leading role in Visconti's The Innocent in 1976, and for Jali fans, a memorable turn as Inspector Tolini in The Black Belly of the Tarantula. Giannini's proficiency in English led to international roles, and those unfamiliar with Giannini's work in Italian cinema will most likely recognise the actor for his role in Hannibal as Inspector Patsy, and his portrayal of French agent René Matisse in the James Bond series. Alongside acting, Giannini has proved to be a successful voice actor, dubbing the likes of Jack Nicholson, Dustin Hoffman and Jared Depardieu. And despite all of his successes in the creative field, Giannini continued with his first love, electronics, designing Robin Williams' gadget jacket for the 1992 film Toys. When we're talking about an actor with an ex- as extensive career as Giannini, it's impossible to succinctly discuss the complexities and accomplishments of his career, I hope that's given a very small insight into his fascinating life on film. Yeah, he's been in a lot, hasn't he? Yeah, so many films. And I think he looks so unrecognisable in libido because I think we all just associate him with that. I was about to say haggard. That's a horrible thing to say, not haggard. But as an older man, especially with the moustache and the grey hair. so Yeah, he looks very young here. Yeah, you kind of almost take a moment. You're like, wow, that is the same person um, because he cuts a very different figure. I'm I'm not surprised he didn't go with um, the name he's credited under here, John Charlie Johns. I know, it's awful. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone's getting their names anglicised and that's what they came up with for him, which, yeah. Yeah. English names are boring, it's fine, you want to sound Italian. It's strange though when we we talk about these films and sometimes we don't mention these other names that people go under, but it's it's surprising how many people have these aliases. Yeah, I suppose in in Italy they wanted more American-sounding names. Some productions were easier to sell if it sounded like they were American rather than Italian. Of course, yeah. And it's not always easy is it when you're watching some old like bootleg of a film and a name comes up that's completely like unrelated to the the name of the person there's yeah. a kind of treasure hunt definitely and you find it you're like oh bruno mata is that again with another another name <laughs> <laughs> brigitte is played by mara maril who was born mara chianetta in agrigento on sicily on april 7 1939 her family moved to trieste on the mainland and later to naples where she started acting in the theater her boyfriend and friend from school sent off an application to the csc the centro sperimentale di cinematografica in rome where she was admitted her father was furious, but she still went off to Rome. And while she was still at the CSC, she was cast in Dina Reese's La Nonna Sabella in 1957 and played smaller roles in about half a dozen films, including Vittorio De Sica's Marriage Italian Style in 1964. She married Ernesto in 1960, and when he made his directorial debut with Libido, Mara was an obvious choice as one of the leads. Not only because she was his wife and would work cheap, but because Mara and Ernesto had a pact that she would only act if he directed and he would only direct if she had one of the leads. Mara was offered roles by both Rocher Vadim and producer Dina De Laurentiis during her career. But Mara and Ernesto's pact and the fact that she had the first two of their three children in the 60s meant that she didn't work much throughout the later half of the 60s. Her only role being in Ernesto's spy caper heist film Cheers to Cyanide in 1968 which she also co-wrote, a role that Mara said that she enjoyed the most, even though the film suffered 
due to poor distribution. People might be interested to hear that Forbidden Photos of a Lady Above Suspicion was originally written with Mara in mind, but Luciano Ocoli reached out to Ernesto in an urgent need of a script, so Gustaldi sold it to him. I suspect that perhaps both Death Walks at Midnight and Death Walks on High Heels were probably written with Mara in mind. Her next lead was in Gustaldi's home invasion thriller Lonely Violent Beach in 1971, where she starred alongside Robert Hoffman and Ricardo Salvino. And then she had quite a long hiatus from the screen and didn't return until 1981 and Torno con Grida, which we'll return to later. Later on in La Fin dell'Eternita, a shoestring budget project made in 1984. Together with Ernesto, she also co-wrote The Great Alligator and The Scorpion with Two Tails for Sergio Martino. And she also wrote a few Jally and some science fiction novels, which were published under a real name. Um, I think that one of the most interesting aspects of, of Mara's career is that she was involved in writing because we talk about how few female figures are involved in the kind of behind the camera um, outside of kind of costume and makeup and the design side of things. Um, So it's really wonderful to hear of these figures. And I think we don't really give enough praise to them. I I was doing a thing not long ago, like a week or so back, and I was trying to like come up with a list of some of the prominent females. Yes, that's that's really like, it's it's really cool to like hear that. I mean, it has credence to it that it's a very male dominated industry, but there's obviously women that were working in it and came through. So it's, it's interesting to know about her involvement in some of those films. But I just love so much that she was the original like actress in mind for the role of like Valentina and Death Walks and um and Will Neve Navarro's roles in both of the, the Death Walks films. The only one that I know for sure is Forbidden Photos, but Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. sorry, yeah. No, 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 but I mean there is a certain similarity between Mara and and Susan Scott, I think. That kind of personality that Susan Scott's Valentina has, you could certainly see Mara in that role. Yeah, that's what I was thinking because it makes so much sense when you talk about Ernesto Gastelli's relationship with his wife and how she comes across in a film like Libido and then you could see her kind of effortlessly fitting into those roles. I know like obviously it's only that role in Forbidden Photos that you know for sure but you can kind of get the sense of these characters being created almost because of this effervescent character that his wife was and picking that yeah. into his writing because he clearly loved her and thought the world of her and she was a creative person and a very interesting person. So um... I really enjoy her performances and I think in some ways, it's a shame that they had that pact because I think she could possibly have had some interesting roles during the 60s and early 70s if it wasn't for the pact. Yeah, it's just that, that what-if question, isn't it? It's always interesting yeah. to speculate on what would have happened if such and such had been cast in this or had more roles in that a certain genre. But I'm sure we'll talk a wee bit more about her character as we go on with the podcast. I'm sure we will. Well, so... Our next female character of, I was going to say of note, but our only other female character. (laughs) And then we have Dominique Basquero, who plays Helene. Basquero was born in 1937 in Paris to Italian parents. At the outbreak of World War II, she was entrusted to her grandparents in Italy and grew up in the town of Frosino. After the war ended, Basquero returned to France, finding work in Paris in various professions, including a short stint as a seamstress. As always seems to be the case with these biographies, she was then scouted as a model, featuring in the Parisian club magazine Nouvelle Eve, which led to work as a showgirl and minor acting roles. During the early years of the 1960s, her career caught fire and she found work in a variety of productions across a spectrum of genres, from spaghetti westerns to thrillers to spy films and dramas. Her roles in the Jalo were fairly limited outside of her larger role in Libido, 
As her career entered the 1970s, she started to slow down, appearing in more minor minor roles, subsequently retiring at the midpoint of the decade, only to return briefly in 1989 in the Italian soap Passione. But she did appear in a few gialli before retirement, such as The Iguana with the Tongue of Fire, All the Colours of the Dark, and Who Saw Her Die, but again in fairly minor roles. Also worth noting when we talk about Biscaro is that she was romantically involved with Jean-Marie Volante's brother, Claudio, aka Claudio Camasso, in the 1960s, who has quite an interesting backstory that's worth looking into. Pascara is one of those actresses who made the decision to retire when she could and forge a life outside of acting. Interestingly, she became fascinated by the Occitan language and cultural identity due to her relationship with Francois Fontaine. And I believe that's an interest that's followed her throughout her life. So it seems to be that she retired from acting, moved into kind of, I don't know if she studied it per se, but I think that just became like a a life's interest that she pursued after her acting uh, roles dried up. So burned very brightly in the 60s and then retired subsequently after. She's very good. Yes, she's very good. Very distinctive looking as well. I think her and Mara certainly have lots of screen presence. Um, She's playing slightly... I mean, I didn't go too much into her roles because I don't want to just like reel off people's IMDb credits. But I mean, if you look at her performances, she always plays quite like different characters. And I really love her in, um, oh, what's it called? Argo Man. Yeah. Our <laughs> fantastic Argo Man. I mean, she's absolutely brilliant in that. And these kind of like, you know, 1960s pop culture spy films. And then she could do all the kind of peplum stuff as well, more um, yeah. historical, like mythological fantasy films. So. Yeah, lots of varied roles for a female performer, I'd say. It's strange that she didn't get bigger roles in the 70s, really. I think, you know, it's like a lot of people, they get to a certain age and then they can't get roles of uh, above a certain, you know, kind of minor parts. Obviously, she kind of became interested because she had this relationship with um, Fontana, which I mentioned, but she had a relationship with a poet as well and seemed to just go into this cultural identity stuff that maybe took her in a different path. I believe she was cast in an Strindberg's role as Elizabeth Sapieri in Who Saw Die before the film was recast, Anita in the lead instead. Strange that. I mean, I could kind of, I could see her in the lead there. I wonder yeah. why the, there was a recasting. I don't know, again, if it was her star-powered faded. I don't know. Yeah, possibly. Anita, at that time, she was a rising star, so it might have been that. Yeah, and then Dominique was on her way down. I, I always yeah. feel, like, annoyed because I want to be able to say more. I feel like when I'm giving a biography like that, it's just very stripped back and there's not, like, a lot of interest. Yeah, just be it'd be great to know more of these people's stories. Exactly how they got the roles and that sort of thing. That would obviously be really interesting, but also information that's more or less impossible to find so yeah certainly I mean it's funny because we've done a few biographies now where we have these actresses who are in it's typically Paris I think like Anna Gal and things and they they go there and then somebody scouts them and then they just end up with this like huge acting career Um, it seems to be like a bit more common that you would just make the transition from modeling to acting but a lot of the time we don't even really know the process now they find them on TikTok instead (laughs) yeah we we don't always know the process though do we because it's like it goes from you know like very much like when you research people it seems to be like they were modeling and then they got a role in a film and then it led to like film work all over Europe and you want to know more about how they ended up in this country or how long they were in that country for and what they did there but yeah it's not like it is nowadays they've not got a twitter account that's what makes it more interesting because i suppose there's this mystery and they seem like enigmas don't they yeah 
Right, the fourth and final lead is the character of Paul Benoit, the lawyer who Gustavo originally had a mission to be played by Enrico Maria Salerno and instead went to Luciana Pigozzi. He was born in Novellara in 1927 and was dubbed the Italian Peter Lauro due to the likeness with the Hungarian actor. He was very prolific and often went by the name Alan Collins and made his debut in 1955 and worked with prominent directors such as Vittorio De Sica and Roberto Rossellini early on in his career. Castaldi first met Pigozzi in 1961 on the set of Paolo Werewolf in a Girl's Dormitory, which Castaldi had written, and he later remembered him when it was time to cast a replacement for the Salerno role. Following Werewolf, Pigozzi would pretty much exclusively appear in Sean Affair, racking up a really impressive number of credits. It's over 100 in films by Mario Bava, Sergio Martino, Umberto Lenzi and Antonio Margheriti. He passed away June 2008, aged 81. He's certainly one of the most easily recognisable Italian character actors, isn't he? Yeah, absolutely. A ridiculous number of credits. <laughs> Yeah, very distinctive look about him. You, you can see why they dubbed him the Italian Peter Lorre. <laughs> yeah. Time to talk a little bit about the film. Yeah, yeah. So Libida is another one of those films where it's where you can sort of come straight out and say that it's quite heavily inspired by Clouseau's The Diabolic, one of the most, as we've said before on the show, one of the most influential films of the of the shallow genre, especially the 60s thrillers. The way that it's got a limited number of characters that the film revolves around, the characters of even got French names and trying to trick somebody into thinking that the dead are alive, in this case both Christian's father and later on in the film Eileen. The setup works really well for a limited number of actors and locations, and which is a necessity for a low-budget feature like this. And as you mentioned, in the lead-in, it's also got a pronounced gothic horror influence, which isn't surprising since Gastaldi had written several films in the genre. The Vampire and the Ballerina, Frida's The Horrible Dr. Hitchcock, Margrethe's The Virgin of Nuremberg, Barber's The Whip and the Body, as well as Long Hair of Death. So he was intimately familiar with the genre and its fake gold and empty castle corridors and hidden passages and thunderstorms and the film is set very much resembles an old castle with its corridors and opulent furniture and like in many gothic films an isolated location as well 30 kilometers away from anything would you agree with that yeah absolutely i think we can obviously see gastaldi's influence in writing gothic horror here um like you said you picked it like mario bava's the whip in the body for example and i think you know there's one scene that almost seems like lifted straight from the whip in the body and it's like replicated here yeah and it has many libido has many of the components of, of a supernatural gothic horror obviously the twist is that we're led to believe that there's something going on that's supernatural when in actual fact it's it's not supernatural at all and it's nothing to do with the, the dead father but it's you know very much ingrained in the the thriller you say the cluzo um strain of the thriller yeah it's positioned as somewhat of a ghost story with its signifiers of the gothic like you say the candelabras the thunderstorms the gothic house slash castle but yeah there, there's very much a rational explanation here for the events very much part of an orchestrated plot and i think that's a way of gestalt and salerno misdirecting their all it's trying to make us believe one thing and and rely on our knowledge of the gothic horn in order to make us believe that it's a ghost story because it's very much totally like a ghost story um, and with its trappings but yeah very much more of a thriller so the gothic influence was obviously something that wasn't new but the thriller genre was quite new and as we've said before the blood and black lace wasn't a big hit so this was new territory that was covered and perhaps one of the first films to 
to find more influence from Lydia Balik. But he also brings in some aspects that we very intimately connect with with Ajali, and that's that's become a trope. So do you want to talk a little bit more about that? I'm, I'm thinking of like the childhood traumas and that sort of thing. What's perhaps most apparent about Libido and the evolution of the Jalo is that it's very much a bridging work in Gastaldi's career, um, but also in terms of the direction that the Jalo would move towards, arriving at that more archetypal Strange Vice of Mrs. Ward style entry. Um, there's lots of credit given to Argento and rightfully so, but Gastaldi's work in the genre, as we've mentioned before, is arguably what shaped the Jalo. So like you said, bringing in those psychological components grounded in Clouseau's contribution to the thriller genre as well as Hitchcock's, um, to create effective, well-scripted thrillers that could be transposed to various settings and reflect the society of the time. Um, yeah, and going back to that psychological idea, I mean, that is very much what underpins libido and it's what underpins like a lot of the jelly that we see, you know, in the 1970s. And sometimes it's quite hard to pinpoint exactly what makes a jago a jago, like beyond obvious visual signifiers. But I'd say the psychological component is really vital in that. I was going to say maybe differing slightly from gothic horror, but I mean, I don't know what you would think about that. I mean, it's not like there's not psychological elements in gothic horror, but not in the same way that they seem to be in the shadow. No, it's difficult though in the, the mid '60s because they're very much straddling on two sides of the same line. Some of the gothic horrors could probably be classified as a giallo and vice versa. So it's it's really difficult. But I mean, I, I think one thing is perhaps the periods in which they take place. I mean, if it's a contemporary setting, it, they tend to end up in the giallo genre than the gothic horror. Yeah. Even though there are like a lot of components that you would find in the gothic horror. Yeah, it's like that idea of modernity, isn't it, that really yeah. um, sets the Jalo apart. But, but I think that's that's a great point you've made. I mean, these more gothic-influenced titles straddle that line. I mean, we talked about the murder clinic, which I suppose is a good yeah. comparative piece. Um, I would say, you know, both... I say libido more than the, the murder clinic probably fits the, the Jalo criteria, but I think they're both, you know, examples of a Jalo, just a lot more gothically influenced but yeah maybe a bit, a bit removed yeah in some ways this is more like a gothic horror film than the murder clinic because it seems the murder clinic is more taken on that masked killer approach actually no that is a really good point because there's me i'm thinking more in terms of like the historical setting but yeah no you're yeah. right even though we have the historical setting we do have the contemporary shallow styled killer there so yeah it, you can kind of analyze it either way can't you um so yeah. yeah that's i suppose why we're referring to these these sorts of films as almost like prototype shally kind of mix other influences but then as you get into into the mid-1970s you have kind of plitziotechi jelly and jelly that becomes more like an erotic thriller later on once again to the late 80s early 90s so yeah it's a genre that isn't always easy to pin down but we want to no, talk about these not. more like these outliers not that i would necessarily call the video an outlier but there you go <laughs> so yeah talking about the psychological nature of libido maybe go into that a wee bit so libido opens with a quote from sigmund freud about the concept of the libido setting the stage for the psychoanalytical framing of the film yet despite the quoting of freud in the film's title pertaining to sex libido is a fairly chaste affair bar some sexual teasing and dancing from Brigitte. but there is a psychosexual leaning to the film not necessarily overt in nature that underpins libido in christian's malaise concerning his defective nature the psychological themes in the film don't exclusively pertain to sex but to more generalized psychological trauma in this case the trauma christian experiences as a child witnessing a woman's death at the hands of his father 
and his father's subsequent suicide. Gastaldi portrays the character of Christian as a man haunted by his past, and he beautifully marries this idea with a seemingly supernatural mystery, naturally drawing comparisons between being haunted psychologically and being haunted in a ghostly, otherworldly sense. And Gastaldi plays with that ambiguity, keeping his audience guessing as to whether the events of the villa relate to the ghost of Christian's father, or if they're more psychological in nature, born from Christian's psychosis. Yet in the film's climax, the reason is neither psychological or supernatural, rather the result of the greed of Brigitte and Helene, and it's a testament to Gastaldi's script that he successfully writes libido in an ambiguous way that makes either scenario plausible in the framework of the film. So in libido we have this strong Freudian theme of childhood trauma, so there's obvious um, other films that that brings to mind. So I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about what springs to mind immediately when we think about childhood trauma in the genre. Yeah, because that's one of the aspects of the film that would become very influential and a commonly recurring trope appearing in films from Argento and Martino, Ricardo Freda and Crispino as well. And also, as you mentioned before, the young Christian has got a music box, which is playing when he discovers his father with a dead woman and the melody becomes intrinsically linked with the murder and similar to how Dario Gento would later use children's melody playing as the killer got busy in deep red and that's also a trope that's developed here because how a piece of music would be evocative of a dead person who may or may not be dead is also there in full trees one on top of the other in the sweet body of deborah and god afraid as double face as well yeah when we see christian as a child as well we see this happy boy playing with his music box but upon discovering his father's darkness he becomes traumatized so we get the sense that there's this loss of innocence and that christian is now trapped in this disturbed psychological psychological state that's rendered him incapacitated for much of his teenage and early adult years. He's not recovered from what he's experienced, but rather repressed it. The opening scene of Christian as a child wandering down the corridor is replicated on his return when he sees Brigitte in a similar manner in the bedroom, which creates a sense of reverberations of the past and that the past will repeat itself. That Christian is destined to follow in his father's footsteps. He's very much reliving that nightmare, awakening latent traumas. And there's this idea here of cycles of trauma, which feels quite modern, I think, like when we're looking at psychological themes. Christian's father conducts his unspeakable acts in a mirrored bedroom, which is a radically different space from the rest of the villa, feeling almost like a modern fantasy palace the mirrors in the bedroom are key as we see two different characters reflected in them Brigitte and Christian uh, creating an effect of multiple reflections therefore different versions of said characters uh, in the case of Brigitte this highlights her duplicitous nature then that there's a dormant other side to her with Christian, it suggests that he's wrestling with this version of himself that he's convinced lies dormant, but it's also a reminder of his past trauma that took place inside the bedroom. The mirrors echo the past back to him, a past he's unable to escape from and is reminded of when he gazes in the mirror and sees his father reflected in himself. In Christian, there's this innate fear of becoming his father and a desperate desire to not befall the same psychological affliction. Christian's plea that he's not like his father draws comparison to Argenta's opera, in which Betty also desperately tries to forge a different path than her mother. And just like Libido, opera deals with sexual perversion, albeit in a much more explicit manner. And one of the quotes from the film that stands out to me um, in relation to the character of Christian, which I think perfectly sums up his character, is the fascination of the abyss. It feels very relevant, it really encapsulates the themes of libido, and Christian has this morbid fascination with his own psychological abyss, which he appears to be teetering over into, and which is conveyed visually at the film's end when he looks over the cliff face. That's really good. I didn't make the connection to opera, but when you say it, it's obvious. Because I spent a bit of time with opera when I was writing some piece about it, I just this idea of, you know, like that more sexual nature of the film 
film, but essentially she doesn't want to become like her mother, who she per- perceives as a sexual deviant, or who other characters perceive as a sexual deviant, which I suppose she is. And Libido has a similar idea, but I kind of wrestled a bit with calling this film chase because there are sexual components to it, but it is a lot more chase than it probably would have been if this was five, seven, seventeen years on. Oh, for sure. It's 55 years later. It's difficult to gauge how explicit or something was or wasn't at the time. From what I understand, the only thing that the censors had a really big problem with was Brigitte's um, throwaway remark that they painted really big asses back in the day. (laughs) Which is a great line. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, the themes are there and they're sort of explicit, but in terms of nudity and that sort of thing, it's a quite chaste film. Yeah, it's that weird juxtaposition of there, there's these sexual underlying themes, but it's not sexual, like at least visually. No. Now, I could just say one more thing when we're talking about the, the sexual motifs of the film. I'm not quite sure if Brigitte and Eileen, are they a couple or are they not? I think there are signs towards them possibly being a couple, but there's nothing of that there really. It feels like somewhat that it's implied that they might be lovers. You know, I never actually thought of that. That's the first time I've thought of that. I never picked up on that. So that's, that's an interesting reading of the film. They well could be because we don't really know the extent of that relationship but it would give reasoning to why that they're in cahoots and are you know working in tandem i mean she says something to her like um, dear and she's and she's touching her towards the end there that could potentially be something i'm not sure if it's there or not yeah no you're all right because i suppose maybe it's just because of me like me and maybe people i know but i just thought that was like a condescending kind of jokey bit but actually yeah no that is a valid reading of it as well isn't it and it's one of those things that you don't know are they holding back here because it's will potentially give them problems with the senses or did they not feel that there was enough there to expand upon or I don't know. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good subtle way of doing it. And like, like you said, we, we're never entirely sure what's acceptable and at what time and that could well be a way of, you know, bypassing the issues that would come with that. Yeah. Um, because again, if this is five, seven years on, I think they would definitely get away with that being more of a, there'd probably be a, a lesbian sex scene as well. <laughs> yeah, they wouldn't have missed out on that <laughs> yeah. opportunity. Shows how much um, things can change in a couple of years. Yeah. Not even just in relation to that, but yeah, just like we said, it is quite a chaste affair compared to, to later entries. So we talked briefly there about um, Christian's father, who's this ambiguous, mysterious character who we never actually see. And there's questions over whether Christian's father is alive or has returned from the grave. And the ambiguous nature of his death suggests he might well be alive, um, a thriller mechanic well trod in the shallow that we've discussed in many episodes now. Um, a character who's supposedly dead is really alive. Of course, Castaldi plays with the audience because Christian's father is largely irrelevant to the events that take place at the villa. It's more Christian's vulnerability surrounding his father that opens him up for exploitation. But the question marks surrounding Christian's father creates this wonderful supernatural tinged mood, which is really enhanced by the faceless nature of its character. So I, I really like the fact that we never see Christian's dad. Yeah. I mean, maybe again, that's like budget limitations, but I think it's it's really effective that he just seems like this mysterious character, like otherworldly. It fits so nicely with those gothic elements and the ghost story. Yeah, because since you don't see him, he becomes this ghostly figure, so it works a lot better than than it would have done if you would have seen him more of him. Yeah, and then that wonderful macabre like pipe that he owns that's shaped like a skull. Yeah. It just makes him feel like this really dark figure. And then I think it's good because 
we as the audience start to imagine what he's like and what other things he did, how he fell down that path, what was his relationship with Christian's mother, like none of that's expanded on. And I know some people would prefer to have that information given to them, but I really like, yeah, making my own assessment on where what happened to character and how they ended up like that and that open-ended yeah. nature of the film. Yeah, because it's not really his story, it's, it's Christian's. Yeah, yeah, exactly, because, you know, it seems like it's going to be his story, you know, especially that, oh, the body was never found, but yeah, completely inconsequential, yeah. really. Yeah, and it certainly makes Christian a very good candidate, somebody that you could potentially drive around the bend and uh, help them develop a full-blown psychosis. Exactly, yeah, just pushing someone to the edge, and that is at the edge of the abyss. Yeah, so obviously Christian is pushed to the edge, and we're not entirely sure what's happening, who's involved. I think, you know, for parts you might believe that Paul is this master manipulator, especially as he holds the purse strings and seems to have the most to benefit from if Christian goes insane. But actually... In actual fact, it's Elaine and um, Brigitte conspiring together. Uh, so I don't know if we want to now talk a wee bit about Brigitte as a character and her reveal as such as a master manipulator. We've talked before about how good Gustavi was with writing interesting female characters, and I think Brigitte is another good example. It's also interesting here to, to speculate a little bit on how much Mara was involved in the development of the character. Brigitte comes off as this sort of ditzy, quite unintelligent character coming out with these like I said that line about they used to paint really big bombs and and she puts a foot in it regarding the mirrored room and brings up this all these inappropriate subjects and stuff but I mean she even manages to outwit the person who's probably the the real architect behind the plot against Christian and is the one who in cold-blooded manner pushes Paul over the edge of the cliff as well. So I think she's a really great character. Um, no, no, yeah, I completely agree. I think she's she's a brilliant character, um, really memorable. I love that she's full of confidence, that she's forthright. And I like how she has that childish nature, like you say about, you know, the big horses yeah. and she seems quite petty and like everyone just dismisses her. But um, yeah, she very much uses that as a form of diversion to hide her calculating nature. And I, you know what I really like actually, you know, when we find out that she is kind of the the perpetrator of this, well, joint perpetrator. Like when she sashes down the corridor and she still seems to be quite like dainty and still playing to that like girly feminine way that she is, but she's just been involved in this really. Yeah, when she's clearing away the evidence there. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And she's just, she's been really wicked, but it's just like, oh, whatever. She's just doing it in the same way that she'd like paint her nails like earlier on. So Yeah. yeah, just like little moments like that make her really memorable and you feel like Mara really put herself into that role. We usually talk about memorable scenes and it's not really a set piece heavy kind of film. I mean, the first murder in the film appears 75 minutes in as Brigitte pushes Paul off a cliff. But there are some great scenes of the camera crawling through the villa, which I think are really effective in in creating that sort of gothic atmosphere. But also the scenes where Eileen appears as a corpse trying to push Christian over the edge are really effective as well. And obviously it brings um, Lydia Balik to mind. Yeah, I really like her makeup there and it just adds to the atmosphere of the whole piece, doesn't it? Yeah, it's a testament to Gestaldi and Zalona's writing and direction that they managed to make thriller that's as tight as this one is with just four characters. They really make it work, don't they? Yeah, absolutely, because it was... I find quite striking about Lobido is the simplicity of it as a film. You know, very few players, very few locations, quite a simple plot really I mean like it's it's really well done but it doesn't go on to these like outlandish kind of outliers or misdirection that feels like inauthentic you know sometimes we find that with later Shally is that they're enjoyable but there's some crazy red herrings thrown in but this you know the plot is is 
pretty much watertight, holds up well. You kind of think, like, how can it really be that suspenseful as a piece with only four characters, but somehow it feels really satisfying and well done despite that. And I think because there's so many twists and turns at the end that you're kind of left guessing right up until the end. Yeah, I don't think too many people will crack the mystery the first time they watch it. No, I wouldn't have thought though. You might have an inclination about who's involved, but not yeah. probably the way that... Yeah, considering you've got four players. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like, well, just be like, well, it's either this person, that person, or that one, or the ghost. Yeah, or the, or ghost. the ghost. But you probably, if you know this is categorised as a shadow, you're probably going to be like, yeah, it's, it's not a ghost. Like, yeah. You could be coming back from the grave, though, but it was just, yeah, it's, it's too obvious, isn't it? But even though that's obvious, it's, yeah, like an obvious red herring, it, it still works. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly not like you sit at any point and just, it's too much of a joy to see the film unfold in front of you for you to really like critically look at who's the possible suspect or not I think no yeah it's not one of those films yeah no I completely agree and like, like you said it's beautifully shot with that sumptuous black and white photography which very much lends itself to the gothic overtures of the story so I mean you're kind of taken in by all of that those visual aspects as well so yeah it works well together did you want to talk a little bit about Christian yeah well we've talked a wee bit about Christian already and him as a cat you know like his character and his psychosis I just like wanted to say that I think Giannini like you know he's this really well regarded actor really important in Italian cinema and I think even though this is his debut role he plays Christian brilliantly with a plum he possesses the moral ambiguity that's required of his character to make him feel like a credible suspect because again maybe that's too obvious for some people but I think the, the way that he plays it um, works quite nicely and he's very much that psychologically disturbed young man desperate to escape what he feels is an inherent aspect of himself and and that works incredibly well within the film but I think that also captures uncertainty of a young man trying to find himself I think there's something almost like relatable in that itself I think a lot of us can think like about do we want to turn into our our parents even if there's not some sort of psychologically damaged aspect to that so yeah I think I think he does really well as Christian you really get the sense of this kind of everyone's fussing over him and he's not well and you can see why he's like losing his mind a bit no but Christian's in good hands with uh, Giancarlo because this could easily have been played as as over the top but I think he manages to keep him sort of believable yeah we we certainly empathize with them don't we um and that his childlike self oh yeah for sure yeah when you bring in these childlike themes i think you just naturally connect to your the own your own kind of childlike nature the the child inside of you and i think there's something quite poetic about that ending with him standing there with the music box at the end i really like that sensitively done then when he throws himself in off the cliffs that wild sea seems to calm down as well yeah no absolutely and it's just quite tragic like innocence lost yeah. the child that he was and like i said earlier he was you know seems like this really happy child playing with this music box and the actions of his father have just completely destroyed his life and not only christians but three other dead people as well yeah yeah exactly but again we might might return to that ending in a bit yeah might be to be continued technically (laughs) well as it turns out that Eileen and Brigitte are behind the whole thing and then Eileen tries to get Brigitte to settle for a smaller amount of the money Brigitte quickly realizes that with Eileen dead she could inherit everything and she was Paul's wife and she shoots Eileen but she's forgotten about the by now insane Christian who's about to strangle Brigitte and instead he it seems like he succumbs to his own as well as his father's desires and he ties her to the bed and yeah it seems like he rapes her doesn't it yeah again because it's quite a chaste film we're not entirely sure but it's 
certainly reads that way. Yeah, so she's tied to to the bed in the mirror room, and then he throws himself off the cliff, as we mentioned. And even though, like, we're saying this, it's quite, a, or I'm saying, I've been saying it's quite a chase film. That scene, when you know the the final scene of Brigitte, where she's lying on the bed with her ankles and her wrists tied up, that seems quite like a, a more mod. Well, it's a more of a modern image, I would say, isn't it? It's yeah. got those kind of S and M style overtones. For sure, but it's a very effective image on on the look of Dean and the poster for the film. Yeah, it's very striking. And again, when you see that image of her in the room in the leopard print, I'll get into this with production design, but um, in the mirrors and things, it, it does make it feel like a lot more modern than it is. I think if you were going off those visuals, then you might think Libido's like a very different film than what it is. Yeah. Maybe that's the crux of it, isn't it? It's like we start with that gothic crumbling castle at the start and all of these like gothic horror elements, and then we're ending in a mirrored room that feels quite modern with these more sexual elements, more modern components that we um, relate to the shadows. So maybe that is very yeah. much a transitional work, like through the film. Yeah, during the actual film. Yeah, that's a reading that we so can it's, give us. It's very impressive. <laughs> Just came up with that on the fly. <laughs> Yeah. No, but it's right. It, I mean, it makes a lot of sense when you say it. We can return to that a little bit later on, the, the legacy of the film mm-hmm. towards the end. Should we talk a little bit about the production history? Yeah, I'm interested to hear what you have to say about this. The film had a really low budget. It was 26 million lira, which is more or less nothing. And Luciana Martina and Mina Loy had contributed 5 million each. And then Gastaldi and Salerno provided the rest for their newly formed nuclear films. The biggest chunk of the budget went to Dominic Pesquero, who was the big name star at this time. And didn't leave much for the rest of the cast, which is why they went with cheap labour such as Mara and unknown debutants such as Giancarlo Giannini, who was competing with Franco Nero for that role, by the way. Which would make sense, kind of think about what Franco Nero was up to at the time. But I, yeah. I and I love Franco Nero, but I'm I much prefer Giancarlo in this one. Yeah, to give that sort of psychological depth, Giannini was probably the better choice. Yeah, saying that in um, what's it called? Third, the, um, the, yeah, the third, third eye. Yeah, and and later on in Quiet um, Place in the Country. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Like he has played those roles, and I, it's not like he wouldn't play it competently. But I think maybe it's more of a physical thing for me. Like I feel physically, Franco Nero. Was didn't feel like is a good a casting choice Giancarlo because Giancarlo has that more like of a thin like he just looks like a man that's a bit more like unsure and not yeah. weedy but you know what I mean like a bit like fragile no for sure definitely more vulnerable yeah than you feel that Franco Nero ever is yeah Franco Nero has that like masculine energy that just seems to like kind of dominate yeah so apart from the actors there wasn't really enough money for a proper crew either so it was a really small crew and um, Sergio Martino who is credited as Serge Martin was the production manager <laughs> as I said earlier Gastaldi took on several roles of the production Production and was credited with several different names, such as the assistant director Ernst Guesthouse. <laughs> yeah. I presume this was just in an effort to make the crew look bigger than it than it really was. Yeah. This low budget meant that the feature had to be shot quickly, and then that's exactly what they did, shooting for long hours over the course of 18 days in April 1965. The first cut clocked in at one hour and 15 minutes, which was a problem since they were contractually obliged to bring in a 90-minute feature. According to Gastaldi, they were held by editor. Roberto Sinquini, who'd edited A Fistful of Dollars, and he saved them by going back through through the outtakes and by using some close-ups and reprinting some shots back to front, and he managed to pad the running time and with a credit sequence with a Freud quote, which is probably not there just for the story, it's probably there to pad out a bit of running time as well. Yeah, because it's a very long quote, it's longer yeah. than it really should be when you compare it to like the quote that's attributed to him from Strange Vice. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so with all those things, they managed to bring it in at a running time of 90 minutes. And you can tell that some of the other sequences, as like when the camera moves throughout the house, like they sort of milked for, for their worth. They still re- work really well within the context of the film. But I mean, once you've heard this, you see that a few of the sequences go on a little bit longer than they sort of had to. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about the production design? Yeah, I mean, we've touched a wee bit on the production design already, but I'll just add a few extra details. So we're in the mid-60s here there's very much a gothic influence in terms of the setting and themes so we don't have that pop culture 60s slant to production design it's often associated with the genre um, but perhaps that was more prevalent at the tail end of the decade anyway I mean when you look at those other prototype thrillers we talked about they're not in that vein either much of the film's action is contained to Christian's family's gothic house purportedly located in Brest in France the villa's exterior is not located in Pre- Brest surprise surprise based on you know the production history there uh, but in Rome, at Castello della Castellucci. The villa is a typically gothic affair with its winding stately staircase, antique furniture, candelabras and castle-like back passages. It's kind of like a villa-castle hybrid, isn't it, yeah. um, here? But despite its grandiose traditional style, the bedroom of Christian's father is revealed to be a far more modern space designed for nefarious activities, with its mirrored walls and its bed set in a stage-like manner with bold leopard print covers. As mentioned, the mirrors possess a reflective quality, forcing introspection as well as willing the audience to take a closer look at how characters are initially presented to us. And we talked a little bit about mirrors being used in a similar fashion in our episode on um, So Sweet, So Perverse. Christian's villa is located in a coastal setting. We have this wonderful windswept atmospheric setting, which is the staging for several scenes, including Paul's murder and Christian's final introspection. There's a sharp drop off the cliff face and lots of jagged rockery. So despite the lack of blood or explicit violence, it certainly conjures up a scene of a rather gruesome death. Um, I want to come back to that quote as well that I mentioned earlier about the fascination of the abyss because that connects perfectly with Christian's final moments in libido where he looks down and reflects on his father's death. His connection to his father and his own fascination with his latent dark side that's come out in those final scenes. Um, And it's a beautiful poetic note to end on. Um, on, a, on the costume front, um, the most striking look in libido is undoubtedly the cat bikini that Brigitte wears, <laughs> which feels a lot more fashion forward, exhibiting the playfulness of the 1960s as well as her character, um, especially with that rather humorous detail of having a cat's face on a pair of bikini bottoms. <laughs> I don't think that has the same meaning in Italy, like, but yeah, from a modern viewpoint, it's quite, it seems like quite funny in itself, um, regardless of just having a cat in your bikini. Uh, Sildi actually shared an image on Facebook, which you'll have seen yourself. Um, and it's like, I think it's the cover of one of his books. And you see, it's like a colour photo from the production. And yeah. her bikini's yellow in it. So that just, if you want to know what colour it is, it's yellow. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, Brigitte's looks are a lot more useful compared to the more buttoned up fashions of Elaine. Uh, Brigitte's look here is reminiscent of Brigitte Bardot with the Breton stripe, long sleeve top, the back combed blonde hair and thick cat eyeliner. And it's also a great moment when she dons the long leather gloves, which seem at odds with her more youthful, innocent look. Uh, She also wears a fantastic asymmetric embellished dress when the quartet meet for dinner, which adds a bit of daring glamour to proceedings. And the fashions in the film are attributed to dick fashions, I think, but um, I couldn't find any further information, sadly, on that. I mean, it's not the easiest search result. I think... It's probably a gestalt. <laughs> yeah, no, it probably is, because I thought, well, they're so they're so limited, the fashions, that I don't know. It's probably just you yeah. know, bought off wherever. Pro- probably actually Mara's own wardrobe, I would have thought. Yeah, I wouldn't. I don't mean Dominique, but yeah, I would have thought that. I think this is just a, a side note, but it's like there's a few films where Neves Navarro wears the same clothes, 
And I'm like, it must be her personal wardrobe or something she's charged from a set and then worn somewhere yeah. else. Um, but yeah, yeah, anyway, <laughs> but um, as is the case, you can't often find a lot of, of this information. I've sadly not been able to find that cat bikini anywhere else. So, I tried. I tried to find out more. Just tried. Yeah. yeah. It's always a nightmare looking up costumes because, you know, people use IMDb as like the gospel for, for film, but it really is shocking when it comes to like anything outside of actors even. Yeah. There's so many films that have costume accreditation, like, you know, costumes are credited to whoever or there's a fashion house that's been involved and that's just not on IMDb. Just plain wrong. Yeah. So it's always good to check the credits rather than IMDb for something, which they yeah. could be wrong in themselves, but... Yeah, IMDb is not a good place to look for costume information. I found that the hard way when I was doing my Libertine piece. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> a lot of work. <laughs> I can well imagine. Yeah. I haven't got much to say about the, the score. It was written by Carlo Rusticelli. To me, it feels somewhat reminiscent of, of the Blood and Black Lace score at times, but it's more sort of in line with Gothic scores of the time with a like a music box motif added of young Christian's music box. It's not, it's not a particularly memorable score. Like, I mean, it works well within the context of the film, but it's not one that, that I've heard praised. And no one that's considered a favour or that people are falling over themselves to see reissued on vinyl? No, I don't believe it's been issued in any form yet, and I haven't really heard anybody talk about that, that it's high up on people's want lists either. I mean, it's it's a good score, but it's not uh, nothing groundbreaking, perhaps. Yeah, I think people would focus more on that than the musical motif of the Jiminy Cricket music box than the score itself. Yeah. When it comes to to the general release of the film, it received its censorship visa on July 28th, 1965, with a 18 certificate. Depending on which source to believe, the film brought in somewhere along the line of 100 to 150 million lira in domestic box office, which isn't a huge amount, but considering how low the budget was, it's still a pretty decent return. It brought home about 400 million in total with foreign sales. So making it a nice little earner in the end for Luciano Martina and Mina Loy. The US and Canadian theatrical and television rights were acquired by Golden Arrow Films, as reported by Box Office Magazine in October 1966, but it was never actually released there. The success of the film made Luciano Martina and Mina Loy later go on to finance The Sweet Body of Deborah, which sort of properly set off the later 60s boom of Charlie. It's no, funny when you no. mentioned the sweet body of Deborah. I mean, I'm sure David will be listening to this. I know he said that he was looking forward to, to the episode, like David Sutherland. But yeah, when I had to write, uh, well, I say I had to, he asked me very kindly to write my kind of top five 60s Charlie. And it was between like libido and um, the sweet body of Deborah. And I went the sweet body of Deborah. So it's just yeah. funny how you mentioned it there. It's, it's really hard, yeah. Like, because we've talked so much about the differences with the 60s, Shelley, like when you're trying to pick out different examples of the different strains, yeah, it's, it's not always easy. It's... No, it's hard. And especially since, since Barbara made two groundbreaking, but at the time not very influential jelly yeah exactly so you feel like you can't really leave that out <laughs> yeah and then if on that list i think i went death laid an egg and yeah if you're going for something experimental and yeah yeah it's it, like when you look at the list of 70 shally sorry i'm going off topic a bit but when you look at the list of 70 shally you always see the same titles come up most well mostly you see the same titles come up but um with the 60s yeah. there's not even really lists made about them or much coverage so yeah people have quite varied takes on what are the the best films of the genre but libido is certainly worthwhile and it's certainly up there i think you know it's a very influential piece it just depends on your taste i guess yeah i think it would probably be acknowledged as the influential film that it is if it would have been more readily available in english yeah 
No, it's a very good point. It's like loads of films that we talk about. It's just the lack of release, isn't it? Well, Gastaldi continued to churn out scripts during the 1960s, but he wouldn't return to the director's chair until 1968 when he directed the previously mentioned Spy Caper, Cheers to Cyanide, which Ernesto and Mara wrote uh, the story for, and Ernesto wrote the script with Vittorio. And it's a light-hearted Spy Caper that Gastaldi claims would have needed a 300 million lira budget, but it was shot on an 80 million one, and that kind of shines through, and it did quite poorly at the box office, only making 27 million lira. He returned to the director's chair again with The Lonely Violet Beach, which was shot in February, March 1971. Again, he wrote the script with Vittorio, but that also failed to make a dent at the box office when it was released later in that year. So Lerno would go on to write over a dozen feature films, several of them together with Castaldi, but he only directed two films during the 1970s, which is a bit of a shame considering the two films are the thriller drama Now the Case is Happily Resolved in 1973 and Fango Bolente or Savage 3, which Gastaldi had written, No, the case is happily resolved, had modest returns, but The Savage 3 did really well at the box office, making almost 725 million lira. He also collaborated with his brother on the hugely successful The Anonymous Venetian, starring um, Berinda Balkan and Tony Masanti. And then Salerno and Gastaldi would reunite again in 1981 when they wrote and co-directed Notorno con Grida, Night Screams, or Screams in the Nights, which... It's a sequel of sorts to Libido. What have we got to say about that film? Yeah, it's just a bit of a strange one because I was thinking, I was thinking about this and I was like, I'm not sure if I can recall any other Jali with a sequel as such. I mean, one that came to mind was uh, The Strange Story of Olga O, which is like a reimagining of The Strange Vice of Mrs. Ward, but I can't think of anything that's like necessary sequel like so this is quite an interesting one and it's a film that I hadn't seen till fairly recently yeah same here. yeah i think it just kind of emerged with in certain places with fan subtitles isn't it and yeah. it's really quite a revelation because it's basically using the premise of libido and what happened and having this story continuing on years later yeah it's it's interesting like you said it's not a direct sequel but mara returns in the role of Brigitte and Luciano Pigozzi returns as Paul and there are clips from Libido used in the film. Yeah, which is just very, very odd to see. Yeah, and Gastaldi and Salerno couldn't get Dominique Boschero to return, but so she was replaced by Martine Brochard and the same with Giancarlo Giannini, who was a bit too famous at this point. Yeah, I don't think this is the kind of work he'd be wanting to to do at the time. Not that it's not a bad, a bad film per se, actually. It's quite a surprise. I think your expectations of it would be quite low, as mine certainly were, but it's actually pretty decent for what is. And I like how they've taken that concept and brought some of these characters back and there's a psychic reading element and most of it's contained to a, for- a kind of forest woodland setting, isn't it, really? Yeah, in terms of location, it's it's almost cheaper than, than making the video <laughs> yeah. because it's more or less set in a forest. Yeah, exactly. But... It's an interesting curiosity, and especially since they're recycling the characters, but it's not a, not a continuation because they all died. So it's just they're using the same characters in a different scenario, really. Yeah, it's almost like it's a continuation of those characters, but almost like framed in an alternative reality, I suppose. Yeah. In yeah. a sense, when you say alternative reality, it makes it sound like some sort of science fiction film. But yeah, it's almost like a what if this happened, maybe. Yeah was financed through Articulo 28, which was an Italian 
Australian law which allowed filmmakers to apply for public funds for financing and if the film turned out to be successful the money was you had to repay the money and if not which was more often than not the case the film ownership went to the CSC and then Gastaldi directed La Fin de la Tanita in 1984 I think it might have been another Articular 28 production based on an, on an early science fiction script that he wrote back in the 60s and that's like a shot on video production with Mara and I believe it's one of his sons but that's only available in an Italian version so I, I can't really say too much about that film because my Italian is not good enough too and then there's another imdb credit which says it's a short i'm not sure if it is actually but it's it's a film called luovo del cuculo the cuckoo's egg which according to castell there was another article 28 project which was set in sarajevo and shot in romania which he did as a favor to a friend but that's the one film that i haven't been able to find see if that ever emerges yeah so not a lot of films from either of these two, but which is a shame. I mean, Castaldi, obviously, it seems like he enjoyed the writing more than he did the directing, but perhaps he didn't really have see his full potential as a director because he always worked with really low budgets and that's it's difficult to realise your ideas that way. So Lerner seemed to have fared a little bit better with a few films that he did. Both his 70s films are accomplished efforts that look quite professional and are both enjoyable films, so shame that I didn't do anymore. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things, isn't it, where it would, it would be, be nice to have more examples of his work. But I'm, again, like I said, I'm really pleased that Gastaldi mainly stick to writing because he's just so good at it. And if it wasn't for Gastaldi, yeah. we wouldn't have, you know, if he'd gone more towards the director, we wouldn't have had like a lot of these wonderful well, screenplays. Or if we had them, they would have been in a lot more of a reduced capacity just due to the, you know, like low budget situation. That's true. So do you want to wrap this up? Yeah, our final thoughts on on Libido. Libido is an essential work for fans of the Jalo, a hugely influential text that shaped the trajectory of the genre, bridging the gap between the gothic horror and the modern psychoanalytical Jalo, successfully marrying the two styles together through the simplicity of its premise. Those familiar with the work of Giancarlo Giannini will relish the opportunity to see his cinematic debut, but Lido is very much an ensemble piece with solid performances from its quartet of players, with a particularly captivating performance from Mara Mara as Brigitte. The Freudian themes at play are sure to entice those interested in the psychoanalytical mechanisms of the Jago and make for an intriguing comparison piece with Argento's Deep Red. Yet for those looking to chart the evolution of Castaldi's career in Italian genre cinema at large, Libido is sure to intrigue, bearing many of the hallmarks that would go on to characterise the Italian thrillers of the early 1970s. Yeah, like I say, it's one of the most influential jolly of the 60s, and I think this is Probably, I mean, we've had so many films released on on DVD or Blu-ray now, but I think this is probably the most important Jello title still lacking an English-friendly release. Yeah, and I feel like there's potential for it to be released, or I'd hope it would be released in the future. I think it would be nice to see, you know, when we like the fact that like Vinegar Syndrome do these forgotten jelly sets. I would really like to see them do a forgotten jelly set with three black and white entries. Yeah, and. I know I've mentioned this a couple of times, I'm not, it's quite a simplistic way of looking at it, but I think, you know, the production design of the Jalo is is really important for a lot of people. I'm not saying it's the only factor, of course not, but, you know, people really like that pop art sensibility. So I, I can see why people are maybe turned off by the black and white films just because they seem like so different. And I think just in general with cinema, there's a lot of people that don't like black and white cinema or maybe a bit wary about it just 
because it's not what they're used to especially younger people not to say that everyone's like that but i think that's partly why they're not as as popular as well no i think some people dismiss them just because they're black and white and another problem is that a lot of um, these early jolly haven't really been available in any even decent looking editions or decent looking copies because there hasn't really been anything other than the girl who knew too much released too much and i think you know as i've got older i've really come to appreciate black and white films and what can be done in a black and white film that can't be you know in color but i think with black and white films when you see them in a really bad vhs transfer it's harder easily harder to watch and all that detail gets lost more so i think people coming to these really dodgy bootlegs are probably thinking well maybe the film isn't worth much when it probably is and then there's no demand created because people aren't really that bothered vicious cycle yeah but I think this really deserves to be seen by more people and not re-evaluation. It just needs to be evaluated and have its rightful place as one of the most influential jally of the 60s. And like you said, it would benefit tremendously from a new scan and a proper release. And I would really love for it to get that while um, Ernesto is still alive so he can see some of the praise that I'm sure that people will give it because it is a really, really good film. And I mean, some people would probably say that like, okay, this was a debut and Dario Dentus, The Bird with the Crystal Plumage was a debut as well. Look at that film, that's so much more like impressive, but you have to remember as well that that film had a proper budget. That was a proper film. This was done on a shoestring budget and that Gustaldi and Salona managed this to get such an impressive piece out of of that low budget with their economic storytelling and that really captivates the viewer for those 90 minutes I think that's almost a miracle Absolutely, that's a real skill in itself and again, I don't know, sometimes I come across this um, view online and it's it's true for certain, Charlie, but You'll find people say saying like, oh, well, they were all cheap productions. But, but like you said, Argento with Bird of the Crystal Plumage had a really decent budget to work with. A lot yeah. of these directors did have good budgets to work with. You look at the actors in their films, they were probably most of them were at the top of their game when they were cast. A lot of the players involved, you know, outside of the cast, like there was decent people involved with these productions, decent budgets. So th- this idea that they, they were all cheap Italian thrillers isn't necessarily true so you can't always no. compare them like for like right so in short we demand a proper release of libido yes from somebody please please somebody make Give it us happen that. I think it yeah. would lend itself well to, to release I think out of all the black and white jelly out there this is probably the one that would benefit most or would be most well received Rightio. So that's it for Libido. Shall we move on? Uh, for yeah. those of you who pledged to us on Patreon, we can reveal that our next episode is on Lost Chalet, which is quite fitting considering some of the topics that have come up today. So we'll be taking a look at some of the ideas and concepts that never quite came to fruition, from films that were never realised to alternative casting and titles. It's sure to be a fun discussion full of what ifs. So I'm really looking forward to sinking my teeth into that in a few weeks. Yeah, so mind that'll be a good episode and hopefully the first of many. We say this every now and then, we, we really appreciate it when you guys rate or even better review us on iTunes or wherever you listen because it helps with the algorithms so that new people can find us and good reviews increase the likelihood of people checking us out. So if you feel like you can write a few words, we really appreciate that. And as always, you can follow us on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram at FragmentsPod and you can find our individual accounts on Twitter. So they're at Signor Ward and at Rachel underscore. 
You know this music well by now, it's the Ozarks cover on Riz Ortolani's theme from Southern Bloodstained Orchids. You can find more of their music at castleozarks.com. As we mentioned before, we're coming up to our first anniversary of the show, so we've got some exciting things planned for October, so do keep an eye on our social media. Rachel, as always, it's been a pleasure. We hope you enjoyed listening to us talking about libido. Until next time. Bye. Bye.